as we grow up, the question is, do we remain big children and just scream for different things? Or do we start to think, where am I needed? Not what do I need, but where am I needed? What can I, what can I contribute? My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Born in New York in 1965, Rabbi David Slavin came to Australia first to get married in 1991 and then to settle in 1992. He operates Our Big Kitchen, a massive kitchen operation in Bondi, uh, which distributes around 80,000 meals a year to the neediest Australians. He's also a chaplain in the New South Wales Ambulance Service, works to find bone marrow matches for people recovering from leukaemia, operates a school and a synagogue. He and his wife, Leah, have eight children, and it's a delight to welcome him to the Good Life podcast today. Andrew, thank you for having me on the program. David, thank you for hosting me in, uh, in our big kitchen. Uh, so food begin, the story of food in your family has a tragic start uh, with the story of your uncle. Tell True. us about that. Well, my mom should be well and healthy. She lives in New York. I was born in 1931, so I won't tell you her exact age, but uh, she'll be very upset. But still extremely, extremely with it. Uh, is still traumatized as an 11-year-old girl. The war breaks out when she's nine. Two years of being running around, being stateless, moving from Poland into Russia. And um, her youngest sibling, a little boy who could barely speak, at two and a half, literally dies from hunger. And... Uh, they're on a train going from nowhere to nowhere, no idea where they're going or what, what, what's in store for them. Uh, they come to the capital of Kazakhstan, Almaty, big city, and where they go off to a medical center. And in, in horrific circumstances, the, the nurse looks at the boy who was wearing a very nice coat and says he won't need that coat anymore. That's the way she announced the death to them. The child was left. They received a docket, they went back onto the train, and that was the last they heard of him. And uh, this was something that uh, all these years later is still something which which is so raw, such raw pain, feeling she should have done more, she could have done more, and why war and why hunger? But hunger became a very, very big issue. And uh, she herself experienced a great deal of hunger. She carries food with her wherever she goes, and that's very, very central to her being. So this experience of your mother as an 11-year-old girl must have shaped how she uh, dealt with food in, in, in your childhood too, I imagine. Very much so. So you had to finish the meal. It was because there were people hungry elsewhere or because of the uh, terrible lack that she experienced mm. in growing up because it was a long, long time during her years where she was both homeless, stateless and, uh, and hungry. You grew up in New York, or which, which, part of, which part of New York? I grew up in a place called Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood called Crown Heights. Uh, Crown Heights is a lovely, lovely neighborhood where uh, was populated 
almost exclusively by survivors of the war and survivors of, uh, of communism. So when the war was over, many Russian Jews had the opportunity for the first time since the advent of communism in 1917, this is now 1945, to get out as Polish citizens because Russia allowed Poles to go back to Poland because they were now friends you know, after the, uh, after the war because they had a common enemy much bigger in the Germans and the Nazis. Um, many Polish Jews lost family members. Russian Jews filled those empty places in the family and left, which is what my dad did. So when Russia and Germany initially invaded Poland, and this was talking about my, my being fed as a little boy, if it was a bowl of porridge, there was a line made in the middle. That was the dividing line between the Russian and German side. And as I ate one side, this, this was all very, very connected mm. to, to mm. growing up. But uh, in real life, when, when the, um, the Russians and Germans invaded and took back Poland, as they saw it, Poland was the enemy, and Germany and Russia were allies. When Operation Barbarossa turned it on its head and they attacked Russia, um, Germany becomes the big enemy, and Poland, by default, becomes the ally. When the war is over, Russia, for the first time since the end of the communism, allows many people to leave en masse. Jewish people took that opportunity, particularly religious Jewish people, took the opportunity to leave Russia. My dad leaves with that group. Did you have a happy childhood growing up in, uh, in Crown Heights? Couldn't be happier. And you then uh, make the decision to, uh, to, to come to Australia. And, and since we've begun talking, uh, uh, Leia has, uh, has come into, into the room. Um, so maybe I can get the story from one or other of you as to how you first met. You're both pointing at each other. I love this. <laughs> well, I first came to Australia in 1988 with my dad for a... Uh, wedding of my first cousin, a very dear friend, who was marrying a girl from Melbourne. And uh, in the Jewish community, in the community we grew up, families are very, very involved in helping their children find suitable dates. So this is not an arranged marriage, this is an arranged date. There's a big difference between them. But my dad comes with very strict instructions from my mom, who uh, always had the last word at home that uh, not even to think about looking to anybody Australian because it's too far and it's not, it's not happening. Well, as it happens on day one, the cousin with whom we were staying in Melbourne, who in fact set her brother up with his uh, bride and wife-to-be, says to my dad, he's got just a perfect girl. And he told her under no circumstances, and that's about where that stayed. And then over months and years, many people who knew us both constantly kept suggesting that we should go out. And eventually, eventually um, it happened, and we, we met. And uh, at first, it was a little bit uh, of an anticlimax, because so many people thought this is perfect, and Leia definitely didn't see where the, where the similarities were, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't much better. And, uh, As you can see, he enjoys history. <laughs> and my version of history is whatever's happened in history, they tried to destroy us. They tried to, if anyone's tried to harm anyone else, 
if we've survived, if we've got, got through it, let's eat. And that's, that's my beginning, middle and end. If it brings people together, brings people to do good. Mm. So the first date was three hours explaining me Winston Churchill, who he absolutely idolises. <laughs> and I think I failed every part of history in school. So that was, that was the first date. But really, you know, learning to know each other's, really getting to know, getting to know the other person. Mm. And I don't think in my wildest dreams I would even imagine to be blessed um, with such a beautiful marriage and someone that allows me to fly, that I can do what I want, be what I want, and just fly, just fly and just be able to help people, which is really a dream of mine. So, And what role is, does food play in, uh, in your upbringing, Leila? Food plays everything. It, it was, it's always the cornerstone. You know, every typical Jewish mother is always, you know, in Yiddish, it's es mein kit, eat, 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 eat. <laughs> and you just grow up with that. In the home was constantly open, especially with a lot of refugees of men, single men that had come out, could have left their families behind and lost everything. And they would always be at our table. They didn't always look the most presentable. Maybe they didn't smell the nicest, but the dignity that they were given and sitting right up at the head of the table and mm. just to feel so special. So that's really the upbringing that I grew up with. Every festival, every Shabbat, it was about the food and about people joining together. There was a real excitement. There was real family time. So this is something that I had always wanted, a very open home and more than an open home, not just my home, but as we see it, you know, something that morphed into a big kitchen that it becomes a community home. Because mm. I really do, I just feel that warmth sitting around a family table, why can't we have a community family table? doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what, what your background, what you've done, it's where you're going to. And sitting around a table, sharing food together, cooking together, preparing, helping people, there's an incredible warmth, which I feel that we need so desperately in the world today. So our big kitchen operates an interesting space in the, uh, the, the Australian um uh, social services world. Uh, many organisations are in the business of uh, using food to f food distribution to bring people in for a conversation. Uh, other organisations are involved in food rescue and distributing food to those places. Now, what seems unique about our big kitchen is the way in which the food production process becomes social. Uh, where did the spark of that idea come from? It started several years ago with Leah being a hairdresser. So in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox Jewish community, those who, women who marry, wear a wig. And although you're not on TV here, you're just on a podcast, but even if you're on television, you wouldn't know that Leah's wearing a wig today, okay? But um, that's what she's, and she's really good at it. So Leah started by being a hairdresser. This was her first, very creative, and doing hairdressing. That took her into different spaces, whether it's theater, which wasn't very appealing, and then women going through treatment. When somebody goes through treatment for cancer, um, health is number one, finance is a very close number two, and number three is the trauma of losing your hair, another very big thing. And Leia found that when you could give somebody the dignity they see themselves differently, and they're able to persevere through what is a very, very difficult disease. So we set up a little studio at home, and women would come 
and have their wigs made. And, uh, and if they walked out with it, that was very, very big, and they felt really good mm. about it. But in the process, she would say to them, how are you managing with a family and dinner? And very often they'd burst out crying, because Leia does that to people. You know, they should, people open up and they tell them what's going on. So Leia would say a white lie, you know, we, we, I have dinner from yesterday, and I cooked dinner, and my husband ordered dinner. It wasn't exactly so, but basically it sounded good. And telling people, if you took dinner from us, Today, you would actually be helping us. Um, and it worked. Right? It worked. So people take the dinner. And again, we come home to no dinner. So we got a little bit more clever. We started bringing volunteers into the home and started cooking. And then it started to get a little busier. And suddenly there were several people. And we realized we needed to get a bit more logistical mm. and make things a bit better. I went down to Winning Appliances and spoke to John. And told him, I need a chest freezer. You know, maybe when they came back from a customer, a scratch in the door, and we'll, we'll, and he asked me what for, and I explained to him. He says, I'm going to give you a brand new one. It'll be delivered to where you want it to go. It was got delivered to our place, and um, at no cost, which was very nice. And we borrowed a commercial kitchen, and we had three teams, the prepping, cooking, and packing. And it was magnificent. It was a really wonderful day. Feeling that day was absolutely incredible. It's just magical. We still go back to that, you know, that was really, and we were thinking each in our own way mm. and each thinking about what each other are thinking. But at about midnight, Leia comes up to me, we were just finished cleaning up, we were the last ones there. This is amazing. This is the, what a day, what a day, what a day. You know, when can we do this again? That was really the first question, you know. And with a very straight face, I said to Leia, I'm never going to do this again. I can actually touch that moment, just that shock of, you know, the, almost felt like I was just, oh. Burst out crying. Who did I marry? What's the, don't you, what's going on? <laughs> and then he had this look in his eyes. And I, oh gosh, he had that look for about 10, 12 years, for a long time. And he just said, There'll be groups over here. There'll be groups here. There'll be school groups here. People will be mixing. Food will be going out. Trucks will be coming in the fruits and vegetables. And I was like, whoa, whoa. We just had a cook-off in a school. And he goes, no, this, this is what we're going to do. And he goes, we're going to do it with systems. We'll know what, how much has come in, what's going out, who's being helped. And it was just, I didn't, even, I didn't truly see it. You know, I smiled a lot. And I thought, oh, gosh, he was the joke of town. But he's an incredible visionary. I call him my entrepreneur of goodness because this he had a vision of something so grand. People would laugh, oh, it's too big, what are you going to do? You, you know, every, every problem that came up became, you know, Slavin problem. And he just looked at it as, a, as an opportunity, as an absolute opportunity that we're going to build something so incredible. And I think the actual building process, if you, you, you were there yourself, you would see... We didn't want that to finish. You had Muslims, Greeks, Catholics, Italians, Jewish. It was almost like the UN there. But working together in the most harmonious, beautiful, never would meet the people that they, that, that they would benefit from mm. this. But something, something magnificent. Oh. So that was that night that the kitchen was born. The kitchen was born in my mind. I could see it. And how it, we had no money, we had no space. But I knew that this would have to happen. I know what it would have meant to Leia. 
And I would often tell people that there was a Shah John who lived in northern India. And um, he had a wife whose name was Mumtaz Mahal. And when she passed away, he built a structure to commemorate her. That's obviously the Taj Mahal. And if so many years ago a king can build for a dead queen a building so meaningful and so inspiring, if I have the privilege of sharing my life with a queen who's alive, well, and kicking, should I not build a living palace that will benefit people in a real way? And this was the motivation to be able to build and to get a couple of no's along the way. But eventually, you just need one yes, and we progressed and progressed and progressed. And the kitchen is now here, and uh, we're very, very pleased. And you were showing me through it this morning. The uh, scale is, uh, is is extraordinary. The fridge rooms, the freezer rooms, uh, the uh, dispatch centres. Andrew, uh, Andrew, if there's one thing which I say more than anything else, it would be we haven't began to scratch the surface. I think we're the happiest, unhappiest people <laughs> because we see what we've got. We see how much more we could do. But I love the story, David, you were telling me about uh, how you ask people to make donations, making clear that really they're not doing you a favour, you're doing them a favour. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, so the way, the way it basically worked is so you approach somebody and there's a long line of people wanting things from anybody that has resources. And I definitely don't want to be, you know, one of the five billion people in the world who are chasing money. It's definitely not what I want to do. And we want to get things done. And I, when you stop and you talk to people, you ask them what's important to them. People have families. People have businesses. What's socially important to them? What do they want to hear at their funerals? What have they achieved? What, 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 what do they contribute to the world? What dreams would they like to see happen You know, when they were younger? And today, life has gotten in the way of those things. So you do this properly. You approach, say, a Tyler, and you say to him, tell me what's important to you. And then whatever the person would say, and I've done this hundreds of times, never failed. What is important to you? And whatever they would say, things like homelessness, world peace, social isolation, any issue that was important to them, crime, whatever it may be, whatever, whatever the social problem they found uh, lacking in the world, and they would like to make a contribution towards that, I would say, I can't believe you just said that because that's exactly what we're trying to build. So instead of it being, I think you should help me, it's I am here to help you see through that vision, because you just told me that's important, isn't it? Well, let's do it. And uh, your small contribution will fill that little void that we now need to be able to create this space where people can come together and cook and share and help. So this is how we, you know, Turned, turned the tables rather than somebody, do, which is in the kitchen, you, there's no plaques of sponsors, there's no, there's no, there's no because our name should be hanging in their house, not vice versa, because we've helped them do what was important to them, mm. and we continue to do that. And the way in which you work is to draw on huge numbers of different uh, volunteer groups. Let's go through some of the different uh, volunteers who, who work, in your, work in your kitchen. So Maybe we should start with, uh, with the man who's managing things. Oh, well, yeah. That's, that's the, we went, let's start, we'll start starting with George. George Karunas, lovely, lovely guy. Uh, so at a particular time, there was a program through the uh, Corrective Services of New South Wales 
that um, a select group of inmates, uh, based on good behavior, can go out into the community during the day, work, and then go back to sleep in jail. So they were effectively still incarcerated, had to fill their, their, their sentence, but when it was when but but this was a way of integrating them back into the community and as an incentive for good behavior within jail within jail. Um, we've had probably about 30, 35 participants that came through that program. They're inmates, we've always called them participants or staff. And the people who've made bad choices and who've paid for those choices. And this is what we believe. And uh, there's a deep belief that if an inmate is shunned and not given a second chance by society, by the community, you could bet your bottom dollar that the inmates will, that the criminals will give him a second chance. And that's exactly where he or she are going to be back. So if we, d and who pays then, then society pays again because mm. they, they continue to offend. So we need to get out of our mindset, which at times is difficult, and say they've done their time and uh, it's time to give them another chance. George was one of the people who were part of that program. Today, he's the manager of the kitchen and his ingenuity and his loyalty and his, and his dedication knows no bounds. And he, George feels that there's everything that he does is really investing back into himself it's not he's doing. It's not like he's doing a favor for somebody else. This is who he really is, and it's a program that we invested a lot of time and are very very proud of the people who came through. And there are challenges working with people who are incarcerated, technical challenges, emotional challenges. But um, if the kitchen was only built for several dozen people who would not have had that opportunity, and also all their, you know, all the people who they would have. Um, offended against if they would not have this because technically many of those would have gone back to jail. So we're very, very pleased to have been part of that product, that project. And having uh, uh, released inmates here also provides them with the opportunity to uh, to meet some interesting people too, I imagine. Oh yeah, no. So what we what we try to do is always to almost to orchestrate, uh, share one one story, and we'll take. I could leave the judge's name in, but. One of one of we David Kirby was a a founding board member of ours um, from the, before he even started. He just stepped down now after many many years. And uh, I would always say to the board the names of the people who were coming to us as part of the program. And I mentioned a particular inmate, and he had this look in his face and said, "Oh, that's interesting. I sentenced them for murder." And um, I asked him, David, are you comfortable with him coming here? He said, absolutely. So he comes along, and I speak to this inmate, who is a lovely guy. And I ask about the criminal justice system. And he was very, very fear, saying he did wrong. They were right. They did the right thing. I deserved it. I did my time. No, no, no pointing fingers at anybody. I asked him, tell me about the judge, and he was full of praise, absolute gentleman. I go back to David Kirby, and I say to him, David, you have a very big fan in this gentleman who you sent away for almost 20 years. 
And he was a bit surprised. He said, oh, that's interesting. Really? I said, yeah. And I said, you know, perhaps you never want to miss an opportunity. I say to him, maybe you should catch up with him for a coffee here. And he was taken back. And, uh, but eventually, that's what happened. The feeling of the same person, the embodiment of society, wearing a robe behind a desk, holding you know, the law at mm. his fingertips, mm. saying to an individual, we don't want you. Go away. You're, you're needless to us. You're useless to us. But when the time passes for Hintail to come, that same person welcomes him back into society is so redemptive. It's so therapeutic. It's so powerful. And we started doing that, encouraging other, other judges to come visit the people who they sentenced all those years ago. Lyra, can you tell me a little about how the uh, school programs work and, and how you manage to harness the energy of schools to volunteer in the kitchen? So that's actually one of my favourite ones, having children coming through the kitchen. The school programs is something about wanting kids to grow up, having this as part of, part of life, part of being fun. You know, mm. we're competing with iPhones, we're competing with games, we're competing with a lot of things in this world and everything is about me. What what can I get for myself? And I've got one thing and my friend has already got the next thing. So this happiness is always, you know, always bypassing them. And we felt that if children could do something tangible with their hands and see the outcome, for them to hand it to somebody else, for them to know that it's going to make a difference in the world, what does it say to a child? It says to a child that I'm important, I matter. Mm. Might not, I might not be top of the school with my grades. I might not be scholastic. I might not be the best runner. I might not be the best soccer player. But I, with my talents, can make a difference in this world. And you see children coming in, literally from all ages, you know, almost like, you know, their shoulders slugged down, you know, either, you know, just anything could have been, you know, could have been bullied or anything, anything happened in their life. And or norm, just normal children stuff. And they walk in and they've created something, something they've never had a chance to do at home, or some of them do, and they come with better skills. And the feeling is incredible. The feeling is just incredible. And we've, we've, got, we've had some such beautiful connections. One of the things we do is get children to write cards. So they, they'll come into the kitchen. The programs will vary. Sometimes they'll just come in and bake biscuits, beautiful decorated biscuits with different, different shapes and different you know, notes on the biscuits. But accompanied with that biscuit is a personal letter, personal small little note that volunteers will dress up as clowns and we have about 500 costumes that were kindly donated to us um we'll head out and just go into the hospitals and nurses will tell us which wards you know to go to who we can cheer up and many times those notes I don't call them biscuits I call them you know biscuits of love and biscuits of hope you know an elderly lady who has just gone through surgery has a note that says on it you are strong you can do it or another lady's receiving a message you know we're thinking of you just just that, you know, that a total stranger and they'll look at it and say, that's just what I needed today. Mm. And here a child can make an incredible difference. So children will come in, bake biscuits, cook, bake bread, learn about healthy eating. And children in all different situations, whether a child has just been diagnosed with diabetes and the list of no's and the list you can't do or celiac, the list of things that you can't eat and being isolated – we turn that into something fun, do a mm, MasterChef mm. competition. They can, quote, unquote, buy what they're allowed to eat, but they've got to cook it, then there are judges. Turning something that could be very 
you know, upsetting into something that's a fun opportunity for the children. And one of my favourite times was we had a group of children that came after school and one of these kids came and he just washed dishes for about two hours. We got a phone call from his mum. What did my son do today? And I thought, oh, gosh, I handed over actually to the rabbi. And I was nervous what she wanted. And he said, she, he washed dishes. She goes, and then she just burst out laughing. I said, you know, what, 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 what happened? And then she explained to us that she had had a birthday party booked for him. He had had a bowling party booked. And he comes home and he says, Mom, I've changed my mind. Thank you very much for the offer of the birthday party. I know I was very excited about that. But I've done something today that I'd love to do for my party with my friends. And she was trying to understand what it was, what, what was better than this expensive bowling party that she had booked. And when we told her that it was washing dishes, she, she, she was just blew her mind. And from that, birthday party started. The birthday party, the children give. Mm. They make, they create, they bake, and it's about giving. So they'll give to the emergency services. They'll give to the nurses and doctors. Each child will take home and think, who can I make happy? Who can I put a smile on their faces? I remember after one birthday party, there was two beautiful boys, young boys. And I said to them, I said, let's take the food that we've created. They've made a beautiful dish and let's give it to someone that doesn't have food. So they look at me and they look at me and they said, we don't know anyone. Our neighbours all have food. Our friends all have food. We have no idea. And it was bothering them that they couldn't take home that few containers of food. They went back to their mum and they come back to me and they said... Next to my dad's work in the city, there are some people that are living on the street. Could we take some there? I said, sure, you can take a whole basket. And then, then I said to them, I said, well, how are they going to eat the food? And then they figured out they needed forks, they needed containers, they needed um, napkins. The boys were, you had to see these two boys just running, collecting the food. And mm. it was an incredible feeling. It was incredible for the mum to watch who she said they had just gone on an overseas trip and she said she had not seen them as excited as they were then to deliver the food. Two hours later, they came back for another crate of food. So <laughs> this is the power. Children are our future. You know, and when people say, you know, teenagers are rotten, I can tell you teenagers are amazing. Kids are amazing. Give it to them in a tangible way. Give it to them in a fun way. They're, they're just incredible. You've Rabbi, also what do you think? I'm not going to argue. <laughs> I've learned that a long time ago. You've also used the space for uh, cross-cultural cooking too. Uh, how has that worked? Magnificent. Magnificent. Give me an example. So what we do is we will bring children from different backgrounds. So, for instance, Jewish and Muslim children who hear about each other and definitely watch on TV things about each other and pick up different, different ideas. What we do very regularly is to bring in two groups there's one group of Jewish children, one group of Muslim children. Each brings three recipes, and we mix them up. So it's not group by group, but it's one, 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 one. So we have them, you know, totally mixed with each other. And part one, they're teaching. Part two, they're learning. And they go away with six recipes. There's a lot of symbolism in that. You know, if, if I have an apple and you have an apple and we exchange, we still each have one apple. If I have an idea and you have an idea and we exchange, we each have two ideas. So that, that, that idea. And then uh, they, just, they just talk and they just hang out and just spend time. And they walk away with new friends, learning new things. They're encouraged to ask questions about each other's behavior and cultures. And you see barriers being broken. And uh, 
this is a program which I really would love to expand. Uh, my idea here would be that to get more adults involved and more programs, because really, in this case, the food is only an excuse. There's so much more that happens um, as a result of these events. You've also done work with uh, Corporate Australia coming in? Yeah, so we have a lot of companies coming in here doing team building. That's become one of our biggest programs in terms of the amount of people that come through here during the week. Uh, the concept is that companies more and more are realizing, A, the need for people to be involved in meaningful team building. Now, you've done your whitewater rafting and your rock climbing and paintball shooting. Now, all wonderful activities. I'm not sure exactly the benefit of society, but so be it. But let's say you've done that and you want to do something which is not only fun, mm. but also meaningful. You could walk away and realize what we have as opposed to what we're missing. And uh, cooking as a group really does that. It's a lot of fun, and companies come along and they pay for the opportunity to participate, which really covers the cost of raw ingredients and keeping the doors open, keeping the lights on. The meals are theirs, and all we have done effectively is to facilitate their coming in, helping them cook it, and uh, if they want to take it, we, which we always encourage them to take it and give it, and not only to those who have hit rock bottom, but to friends, to families. It, one, of the, one of the big issues that we find here is that people are living very siloed lives. And if there's a problem with your neighbor, you don't get involved because it's none of your business. So you wait, and then the marriage falls apart, the job falls apart, the little injury becomes mm. a debilitating injury, and suddenly, and then... They're out in the street. Oh, we wake up. Let's get them food now. We try to encourage school groups to come in. So parents in the school who can pass each other, you know, for 12 years, like ships in the night, never even seeing each other, never knowing each other. Never even, you know, the, except for the one parent that double parks, you know, that, that very rude parent. Every school's got a couple of those. Um, but people don't even know each other. And when your son comes back, your daughter comes back and says, my friend's dad, something happened you have nothing to offer to your child, nothing to offer to them. So we have many of the schools in the area here come in, cook, bake, put away. It's a school who's doing it. Mm. And when the school community knows that within their own community there's somebody who's doing it tough or somebody who's celebrating, the school body comes together to share meals. Those meals happen to be created in the kitchen. That's a separate story. So that's really, so between the corporates and the corporate team building is amazing because it's a great leveler. It's the CEO together with all the employees at the same level. Sometimes those who don't cook very well um, do much better in the office and vice versa. So it's a great opportunity. And we're getting a lot of the bigger IT companies, uh, the bigger banks, um, where there's large members of staff. Um, we're, we've been very, very busy, but we'd love more and more people to come in because it's not just a question of meals being created. It's also an opportunity for people to stop and realize how good we have it. And I think it also allows them, you see them all walking out. They've come in one person. They're here to help somebody else, but they've actually received so much. You know, many people say, we look at the, the world differently. We look at our relationships mm. differently. We look at things that were bothering us when we first walked in and the nagging things, whether at work or at home, it just lifts you up to a different level. 
And you, you see it. You see it time and time again as people come through the doors. It is it's striking to see in my three little boys what uh, how much they are nicer people when they've been volunteering if i take them along to some community event uh it's it's just it brings them it brings them out of themselves makes them less inwardly focused more outwardly focused it's a, it's a striking change you can achieve in a in a very short space of time uh, but I'm curious about what we can learn as a culture from uh, from, from what you're, you're doing, uh, whether there's ways in which Australians outside their capacity to contribute to our big kitchen uh, might reconceptualise uh, our relationship with, with food and, and sharing food. Food is very, very important for the simple reason that we need it on a regular basis. But it can also be such an important metaphor so a child, for instance, a child is born, when the child is three hours old, the child is hungry, and they know how to ask for food. Nobody has to teach us how to say please. That's a given. We scream, we carry on till we get what we want. As we grow up, the question is, do we remain big children and just scream for different things, or do we start to think where am I needed? Not what do I need, but where am I needed? What can I, what can I contribute? Um, food has that constant reminder because as much as I've eaten, there's still the hunger, which will be back again in three hours' time and five hours' time. It's not like I've been there and done that. It doesn't quite work that way. So there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of, a lot of uh, opportunity for people to look at food and learn the lessons that food teaches us. And whether they're looking at food as a way of a parable of accumulating knowledge, which becomes part of us like food does, or food which helps us show appreciation, which is very, very important, food which helps us realize what we have and how easily we can share. So there's, there's a huge amount that we can and should be doing. You know, as a community, we need each other. It is, it is very, very painful to walk past a street full of people or walk into, see a bus stop. Pass a bus stop today, 10, 20 people sitting in there, everybody on their own phone. And people simply have lost the ability to connect and look people in the eyes. So, David, what does this mean in practical terms? What lessons should people be, be drawing, drawing from... People should be learning. Firstly, if you have what to eat, you should feel grateful and not take it for granted. That's a lesson number one. Lesson number two and is... saying grace is very, is very important. Absolutely. In a, in a secular culture, I think we often forget to be grateful for the, the pleasure of having enough food every day. As people, as people Andrew, we are, we are extremely honed to know how to say please or how to take things that we need. We want something, suddenly the person between us and the tomato sauce is important because he could pass it to us. That's, that's the, that, the person didn't exist yesterday, but now he's here because now we need him to do something for us. So that w comes to us as a given. And if we are consumed in a world of pleasure where it's all about what I need, what I need, what I want, what I want, uh, it, it's, it's really not a very, very happy ending to that. If we live in a world that teaches us the opportunity to appreciate what we have, and food is one of those, because when it's not there, we feel it very, very, very acutely, uh, 
th that can be the beginning of starting to realize what we have. In many traditions, and I speak on behalf of the Jewish tradition, our day begins by saying thank you for waking up. That's a lot better than people who don't wake up in the mornings. And then for standing up, and then for being able to touch my toes. And there, there are blessings and opportunities to thank the Almighty for every step of the way. And when we say those thank yous, it's not God that needs those thank yous, it's I who have to say those thank yous. Because if not, all those things are taken for granted. Mm. And instead of waking up to, to today and saying, oh, it's, it's raining outside, not again, and some, how terrible, or it's, it's, I've woke up late, or what have you, all the big, big problems that people tend to have, or I don't know what to wear today, God knows, you know, depending on the gender or depending on the issue that, 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 is, that seems to be important, you stop and realize what you do have. And that is really the difference of being positive or being negative in life. How, life very often will happen in a particular way uh, despite of our best efforts. It's how we internalize it and how we interpret it which really makes the big difference. And we see this again and again with food. And we hope that through a place like the kitchen, people can come in and realize what they have. You know, the, they say the guy who was upset that he had no shoes until he met somebody who had no feet. So on the one hand, also the, the, the realization that I can make a difference. Today, that is becoming so much more of an issue where young people feel, what is the purpose? What am I needed for? What purpose do I have in the world? And why do I, should I put up with any degree of, of inconvenience or hardship um, when there's, uh, what is often seen as an easy way out by putting it all to an end, God forbid. There's a lot of research being done around the scientific benefits of, uh, of fasting, of taking long periods uh, without, without eating. Um, but the, I'm also interested in the uh, spiritual side of fasting and the extent to which fasting helps us better appreciate something that we might have otherwise taken, taken for granted. Uh, to what extent do you think uh, fasting can help play a, a role in a good life? Well, fasting is a part of many traditions. In the Jewish tradition, there are several times a year that we fast. On the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, we don't eat. And the message there is that we are living on a different plane. It's not, it's not that normal day-to-day -day con consumers that we are. Uh, today, we are like angels, we are, we're, we're living, now the fact that we ate for two days before and we'll eat for two days after, we don't, we don't worry about that, but the concept of, of fasting means that we are removing ourselves from our comfort zone. We're removing ourselves from what we do normally, and it gives us an opportunity to think. In fact, um, people who haven't eaten for a long time do attain a level of clarity of thought. Um, my dad often told me that uh, he was 19, being drafted into the, into the Russian army, and one of the ways of getting around it was, was uh, creating the symptoms of particular diseases that kept people away from the army. So he, uh, from the end of Saturday, which is an eating day, didn't eat until the following Friday when he had the doctor's appointment. And he comes to the doctor, not, not having eaten for a week. But he said that during that week, he would often stop. He, there was such clarity in his mind. Very painful, but eventually you settle into that. And um, to come to the doctor to realize the appointment was only next week. 
<laughs> so he would laugh at it. <laughs> he would laugh at it. But but there there's definitely a clarity that comes when we are removed from what am I going to eat now? What am, what's, mm, and what's mm. for lunch and what's for dinner? And what, I'm feeling peckish all the time. And then wake up for a midnight snack. So, you know, we, we tend to look at the benefits of food, but there's definitely uh, a, a, a great deal to be learned from refraining from eating food. And Leah, I'm interested too in the, the way in which uh, all of us might do more to welcome others to our tables. Uh, where do you think there's opportunities uh, that, that we miss to, uh, to, to share food with, uh, with those who, who are strangers to us or who are particularly in need? I think the best way of doing it is not being good at maths. Because when you're not good at maths, <laughs> you have no idea how much to make. So we tend to often fight. One of the things that only, I said the only thing we fight about is he'll tell me I've made too much food and I'll say we didn't invite enough guests. And it's just become something that there's an abundance of food because I'm not good at maths. And um, it gives an opportunity. My children know whoever they'll see, mm. whether they know them or they don't know them so well, it's a neighbour on the street, just come along. And my one condition is, which I tell everybody, and I'm going to extend the invitation to you, Andrew, and to your beautiful family, your three boys, your family, to please join us. And anyone listening to this podcast, join us for a traditional Friday night or a Shabbat day. An abundance of food, not many formalities, just come, relax, but on one condition, that you bring more guests. So that's my, you know, can we bring flowers? Can we bring chocolates? Can we bring this? Can we bring that? And I was like, no. Just invite another 10 more friends. And they look at me. <laughs> That's extraordinary. That's, yeah. you now, now I've put you to a challenge, Andrew. Yes, yes. Our table extends and it can extend out into the garden. It extends out into the hallway. There's never, ever been not enough space. Mm. You know, many times mm. I won't have a seat. My husband won't have a seat. The kids won't have the seat. But you just – you, you the, the room stretches and I think that feeling – of people coming together, sitting around a table with total strangers, you walk away like family. Mm. And to me, that's the greatest gift. And I think we can extend that. I often tell people when they leave the kitchen, walk out with big ears, with big eyes and a big heart. Walk down the street and look at someone in the eye and just smile at them. See an elderly person at a lift. I always tell the kids, I challenge them to 10 people. Give them a compliment. You're at a nursing home. Just look at the lady and say, I love your colour shirt. Earrings are so smart. Watch her shoulders. Watch mm. her smile. Mm. Many times elderly people feel invisible. Just give them a compliment. We lose nothing from giving. In fact, not just lose, we gain. We gain. You've made someone smile. You're not giving of anything. And I think that's really the beauty is that when people make someone happy, it's not a donation. Anyone can do that act. You know, if it's building a building or supporting a, a charity, you need someone with a lot of money. But to give someone a compliment, to smile at someone and to listen to someone and to show empathy, you don't need a cent. And everybody can do that. And I do believe that we're going to make a difference with, in the world. One hot colour at a time, one meal at a time, one sharing a table and... It's our goal to make the world a brighter place. You're also raising eight children. Uh, perhaps this is an extension of, uh, of the earlier question around hospitality, but, uh, but what tips do you have for people who are nervous parents wondering whether they, should, they, they, they could manage with, uh, with one more child? 
So first of all, we're blessed. We always say with one child. And people often look at us, Rabbi, you know, Leia, one child, Rabbi, come on. We said, yes, we have one Mordechai, one Zevi, one Hannah, one Mendel, one Shana, one Shlomi, one Musia, and one Rivka. One makes you a mum. We help a lot of families going through IVF who wait for a miracle just to become a parent once. So you'll never hear from either of us that we have eight children because it's truly a miracle. And it's a struggle, it's a struggle for many couples. And then it's a struggle once they have the child. Um, postnatal depression can fall in. Your hormones are changing completely. And it's a lot of work and it's tough work. But I always look at people and say, you've built a really big business. You know, you've created something incredible. Did you just sit back and do nothing? Well, you worked hard. We're creating the future generation. We've been given a gift of these souls that have been given to us and we've got to give them the best opportunities in life. And I can tell you, I don't even call it hard work. It is the most incredible. We are blessed. I can't stop thanking God every second. Incredible. Do I have any tips? No, just enjoy every moment of it because it goes by so quickly. <laughs> it goes by so quickly. And sometimes I think, oh, maybe it should be stricter. Maybe it should be this. We're just the kids there. As the kids are getting older, they're like, no, I do this. I think everyone should be going to bed on time and everyone should be doing this. We just look at them. We just, come on, guys, let's go out for a pajama drive. Life goes by short. The, the terrible twos pass in a second. The teenagers pass in a second. Life passes by really quickly. Just enjoy it. Take them out of school for the day. Have fun with them. That's my tip. Agreed. And that's just what happens in our household. So, no, you're not going to get any tips of formal parenting from us. Just, just enjoy every moment. And if you have the possibility, keep on having more because it gets easier as you go along. I have a set of final questions. Uh, feel free to both dive in or one, one or the other. Uh, what advice would you, would you give to your teenage self? My teenage self, I would have... I am blessed to live with very little and no regrets. Uh, but my teenage self had the privilege of living in the company of a very, very great man, the Lubavitcher Rebbe who was an absolute giant of a person. And uh, physically, he hasn't been here with us now for almost a quarter of a century. He's very much alive in all that we do. Uh, having said that, if I was a teenager again, I would have spent more time with him personally. You know, you're not to know how things pan out in life, but just seeing uh, the sheer force of his personality. Um, we could connect with that today because there are books and there are videos and there are people who remember and I remember, but that's definitely something which I would do differently going forward. So to spend more time with, yeah. with the one you, you admire. Yeah. Not growing up in America, growing up in Australia, our connection was going once a year, going twice a year, but Definitely that everything that we do today ha is with that push, is with that enthusiasm, is with that, you know, pat on the back, you're doing great, but do more. And making that difference in the world, what would I tell my teenage self? Just fly with whatever talent you have. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to do things that, you know, that you're not good at. Just take your talents and fly with them to, you know, 
God gives us talents. If I look at somebody else and say, oh, I want to be like them or if, if I, you know, that, then you're constantly never happy with yourself. There is only one layer in the world. I came down for a purpose. I came down for a reason. And knowing that and fully believing in that, that only I can achieve what I've, I've been put down in this world mm. to do. If I look at somebody else, I'm not him. I don't have that. I don't a different talents, different temperament. So taking what I've been given, the gift that I've been given, and living that to make the way make the world a better place. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I've never had a challenge with it. I don't. I've, I've yet to have a problem, so it's a little bit, a little bit hard to, <laughs> a little bit hard. If I if I was to have a problem, I don't know. I'd probably seek advice or something. But so so far, it's all been very very. You know, smooth sailing. The answers are fairly clear. Had some over the years, some issues. You talk to people, so I, I've been blessed to have had an incredible life. Especially looking at what goes on in other parts of the world, and what took place even in our country a couple of decades ago. I mean, we really don't have reasons to be upset. And I see that he lives that because many times he'll come home and I know it was a hard day and I know there was challenges. And he'll just look at me and he'll say, you know, my grandparents in Poland or in Russia, can you imagine what their, their day was like today? And he's living, because I think he loves history so much, he's living and breathing it and totally that comes through. I don't remember ever a day at the end of the day sitting at dinner with the kids and a pressure or a negativity or anything that's, you know, that's been hard. It's just look how we've been blessed today. He's able to take every situation and turn it around and it's just a rainbow. It's just beautiful. Gosh, my gosh, we are so blessed that this and this happened to us. What opportunity can we do to do more good? And we've really used every opportunity to take anything that's come to us and turned it into good. And I would say being a woman going through many pregnancies and having postnatal depression with some of the children, I think really just having an incredible support network around you. And I think that's why I feel that the kitchen is so important because we need a village to be part of. We need mm. to be part of people. It doesn't change life circumstances, doesn't change the problems that have been thrown up against us. But you've got someone to talk to. You know, you sit at a mother's group and she'll say, oh, my gosh, yes, I cried all the last two days. Or, yes, I this. You feel like, whoa, I'm normal. And I mm. think that's really part of society, going off our phones, going off our Facebook, our Instagram, just talking, connecting. And at any given time in the kitchen, you'll see people cooking, working together. No one's on their phones. People are just talking. And you walk away with a lighter burden. So I'd say having people surrounding you the whole time, exercising, looking after each other, and having having good people to talk to, connect with. When are you most happy? Oh, when I have people sitting around my Shabbat table. <laughs> when I can share food, when the kitchen's full. When I'm dressed as a clown in the hospital, gosh, the list is, <laughs> you don't get me started, the list is endless. We, we are blessed, thank God. I am happiest when Leah's happy. Simple. And I think we just, because it's a gift to get that happiness, I'll go to the hospitals and make people happy and I think, oh my gosh, I'm receiving so much happiness. I want to share that with the whole world. I've cooked something and I, I've just given it out and I've made, I feel so good. I want other people I never want something just for myself. If I'm feeling something, if I've received something, why shouldn't other people feel that? And I think by having this kitchen, this this feeling of helping people, this feeling of living 
just on a different plane. You, you live on a higher, higher. I can't even describe it. Different reality. Different reality. You're living <coughs> a different reality. It's almost like being on the top of a skyscraper and looking down and thinking these minuscule problems are so little. And when you see people walking out of the kitchen, it's that aha moment that, yeah, little, little things that really were annoying. Oh, it's so windy today. It's so this. You're different. You, you, little things don't bother you. So our happiest time is being able to share this with other people. And finally, to each of you, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, it's the upbringing. You know, a child is a piece of clay who absorbs and who watches, watches a lot more than hears, sees. And if a child is given a positive experience, that is in the most case, who the child becomes. And I was very, very blessed with extremely loving parents and fantastic siblings being born into what I believe and still believe is the best family at the best time in the best place. And again, having the incredible influence of a real, real leader, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, is something which is most part and shaped my life and still continues to do so going forward. And I still hope and pray to live up to his expectations, which I'm sure on the one hand he would be proud, he probably wouldn't tell me so, he'd expect a little bit more, and he's right. I think I'm just going to echo the same feelings that, that David, that you did. I'm blessed, blessed from being a little child to growing up, to be born to the most wonderful, warm family, and just seeing, seeing my parents, seeing my mother running out, delivering people food, um, running out late at night um, to do the ritual of after someone's passed away to bury them in a the traditional way to prepare them before burial. Just things, you know, my father collecting money for a bride and groom that didn't have money to have a wedding. So just constantly seeing. It was never something we were told. You have to do this, is what you have to do in life. Just seeing it. Just seeing, you know, watching my father pass someone in the street and running back and giving him food and giving him a blanket and just just seeing that and being blessed to grow up in a traditional home where the Lubavitcher's values were, were were lived and were part of our home and when we talk about the Rebbe it's just his eyes he cared he cared for every single person that came by and was concerned and if we could do that then we're living his legacy Lara and David Slavin, uh, big chefs with big hearts, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Andrew, Thank we're you. honoured. Thank you for the opportunity. the opportunity. And we look forward to having you join us for a traditional Shabbat meal. And please bring lots of friends with. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week... I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.